All right, so we're going to dismiss Children's Church right now. So those of you that are at that appropriate age, you can go ahead and follow your teachers out to the back, and they will get you to the right places. Those of you that are here still, um, you can take your Bibles if you have them and turn with me to John's Gospel, John chapter 2. Now, I have to say there's a little bit of a warning that I want to give you before I begin my sermon this morning, if I can get this thing off of my... And the warning that I want to give you is that the message today might not square with how you've been feeling. And the message that I have today for you, it's not something that you might be seeing in your life right now. The uh, Bible says we walk by faith, not by sight. And this message, I think, is a message that talks about faith, about a decision that you and I have before us, a decision that we make with our will, not based on our emotions, not based on our circumstances, based on what we know to be true, even if we don't experience it. So I want to invite you just to take a moment and bow your head before we go into the message and just pray. Let's pray. We have moments, Lord, when it feels like you are so far away and our prayers bounce off the ceiling and we wonder where you are. Would you encourage us this morning? Encourage us as we face our fears, as we face our doubts, as we mourn the loss of brothers and sisters, as we deal with this stress of just living in this society and living in the world right now. We just want to bring that all to you, Father God, and ask that you would speak to our hearts and encourage our spirits. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In December of 2007, there's this party of British and Italian diners at Zaffirano's restaurant in Knightsbridge, England. And they decided that they were going to splurge for the evening. They ordered a bottle of 1961 Petrus Pomerol, widely regarded as one of the finest wines ever made. Astronomically expensive at 18,000 pounds per bottle. That's a pricey wine. When the bottle arrived, however, someone noticed that the cork lacked the proper provenance on it. The cork is stamped with, with where it was made and when it was made, and that's its authenticity. And it didn't have anything. And so the customers were quite upset, and, and the embarrassed restaurant manager tries to placate these angry customers who've paid a lot of money for a wine that they're not sure is real. And the wine police were even called. Yeah, you heard me right. There's wine police in London. I don't know if there are in Swift Current. <laughs> but, uh, but they called these guys. Agents came from Petrus to investigate. And an investigator came from Corny and Barnes. And neither group examining the bottle could actually authenticate this bottle of Petrus Pomerol. There was no proof that the bottle was a fake. But there was also no proof that the bottle was genuine. 
Well, thankfully, the customer decided that he was going to order another bottle of wine, a magnum of Mouton Rothschild 1945, at 20,000 pounds a bottle. This bottle was thoroughly appreciated. And the Petrus Pomerol that they weren't sure about? Well, the insurance company actually covered the loss for Zafiranos, but they had one proviso. That bottle had to be poured out. No one could drink it. And the bottle itself destroyed. Wow. Don't you just hate it when your $50,000 bottle of wine turns out to be fake? Man, that just wrecks a whole evening, doesn't it? Like the rest of the evening is just gone. <laughs> How many of you have even drank a bottle of wine that that's expensive? Probably not, right? Some of you are thinking that would go into uh, some, some feed for my cattle this year or something, right? This morning we're looking at John's gospel. John chapter 2. Verse 1 through 11. And it's the fourth time, our fourth excursion into John's gospel. And John's writing this book many decades after the first three gospels were written. So the church already has Matthew and Mark and Luke. And then later on, about four decades later, John decides that he's going to write a story about Jesus as well. And so the church already has these three gospels. And so John adds a whole bunch of new stuff that, that everybody knew, but that somehow didn't make it into those first three books. 90% of the book of John is, is brand new stuff. It's like, oh, yeah, we didn't tell you that Jesus did this. And, oh, we forgot to tell you that Jesus did this. And all of these amazing things that Jesus did. The story of Nicodemus in John chapter 3 is unique to John, the woman at the well in John chapter 4, the teaching on the Holy Spirit in John 14 and 16 and 17. John is pointing us towards a Jesus who can be believed in, a Jesus who truly was God incarnate. See, the first three Gospels emphasize the idea that God became human, and Jesus' humanity is emphasized. In John's Gospel, what he's doing is he's doing the opposite, and he's trying to emphasize that that man, Jesus, that carpenter's son from, from Galilee, that that guy that was crucified by the Romans, he was the son of God. And so that's what John is trying to do throughout this whole gospel. He's leading us to believe that this human being, this humble carpenter's son from Galilee, this man who was condemned and, and executed as a heretic, this Jesus really is the son of God. And so he says in the end of his book, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. John 20, verse 31. And so in all of this stories of Jesus, we have the miracles. And uh, if you follow the Jesus seminar, they, they tend to want to say there were no miracles whatsoever. Um, but it seems pretty obvious that Jesus did some things that nobody could explain scientifically. When it comes to the miracles of Jesus, we know that he performed so many of them that people actually lost count. We have upwards of 50 specific miracles that are recorded in the four Gospels. And yet we know that Jesus performed hundreds of miracles. John literally says if the whole world were written, it wouldn't contain enough books to talk about the miracles that Jesus did. And yet, with all of those miracles, when John goes to write his story about Jesus, he decides to include only eight. That's it. They're less than any other Gospel. Eight miracles. Seven of them public signs 
pointing to who Jesus was, and one of them a private miracle. So this morning, we're going to look at the very, very first one, John chapter 2. The next day, the third day, there's this wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother is there, and Jesus and his disciples are also invited to the celebration. So the setting in John chapter 1, the first chapter of John, that's down around Jerusalem area. That's just slightly east of Jerusalem, Jordan River, somewhere along there, out in the wilderness where John the Baptist is baptizing people. That's where John chapter 1 takes place. Now we're in John chapter 2, and Jesus and his followers have gone up north. They've taken this trek. It's about 110 kilometers, 70 miles, for those of you that are old school. And uh, they've gone back up to Galilee, to Jesus' home country, back north. It's about 110 kilometers. They walk a few days to get that far. And when we get to Galilee, they're, they're invited to this wedding. Oh, you guys showed up. Okay, come. There's a wedding. Now, you and I know the rest of the story. And John's readers do too. And so this little hint, the, the, the third day, that resonates with us, doesn't it? Like, like we know what the third day signifies you know that Jesus is raised from the dead on the third day. And so you're looking forward to that. But this is also a reference backwards to, to a prophet in the Old Testament, a guy by the name of Hosea. And Hosea chapter 6, which is just marvelously beautiful. Hosea says this, Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us so that we might live in his presence. And so let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him as surely as the sun rises he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like spring rains that water the earth. What an amazing passage. Something for you to cling to and claim in the middle of your difficult times. This miraculous transformation of water to wine is a third day kind of miracle. It speaks to us deeply about restoration about joy that's coming. Sorrow lasts for the night and joy comes in the morning. It's about healing. It's about life springing up out of death like spring rains. And, and it's a promise for you and I, for our world who is enduring a pandemic. Come, let us return to the Lord. It is a promise in faith that we know the best is yet to come. Now, during the wedding, the wedding, the wine supply runs out during the festivities. So Jesus' mother tells him they have no more wine. Dear woman, Jesus replies, that's not our problem. My time has not yet come. But his mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. 
<laughs> I love Mary, the mother of Jesus. She is such a fascinating woman. It is really too bad that us Protestants don't uh, study her more it's because of the Catholics and what they've done with Mary, but that's okay. Mary is really prominent in this story, in John chapter 2. She's the one who first spots the problem. They're running out of wine. Oh, no, goodness gracious. She's the one who tells the servants, uh, she's the one who brings this problem to Jesus. Like, of all the things that she could have done, run out and bought some more wine or something like that, she doesn't. She brings this problem to Jesus. And then she's the one who tells the servants to obey her son, Jesus. Do whatever he tells you to do. And there's some humor in this, in this part of the story as well because Mary comes to Jesus and his five disciples. She's not going to be put off, right? She's, she's what we call that sanctified stubbornness. A lot of you women have that. A lot of you men have that as well. That's a good thing. She's not going to get put off. She's going to press onward. She's maybe being subtle here because, I mean, she kind of thought maybe Jesus was going to stay in the south with his disciples, and all of a sudden, he shows up with five guys in tow. Now, how many of you moms have had one of your sons show up, and he's got like five of his buddies with him, and you're just like, I don't know if I've made enough soup uh, for all of you. We had a little bit of that with Bible school students showing up famished, and they would just ravage our whole fridge, and we're just like, and Mary is kind of, so she's kind of subtly looking at Jesus and his followers and saying, you know, guys, it's kind of your fault that uh, we ran out of wine. <laughs> so, so what are you going to do about it? And Mary has had a really hard life. Like for all that we love Mary and we admire her, let's recognize her life has been difficult. She was probably just a teenager when she got pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And even though her husband Joseph does marry her, they live in poverty. Two turtle doves are the sacrifice of the poor person. She's broke. Being the mother of Jesus is not easy. There's this flying trip down to Egypt for safety from the king that wants to kill her baby. There's returning to Nazareth and trying to eke out a living, losing her husband to death somewhere along the way. We're not even told when Joseph passes away. And just think of all the side eyes from the gossip. They said, there's Jesus, the son of Mary. You know what they're saying? They're saying he doesn't have a father. They're saying there's something going on there. If you know the story, you know that Mary's had a hard life and you know that Mary is one of the few people that actually stays with Jesus in his resurrection. She's one of the few people that hangs around on the cross, at the foot of the cross, as her son is being beaten and dying. She has to watch her beloved son being brutally murdered, John 19.25. Mary is given what every mother fears for her child, a wrongful, torturous death by bigots and religious fanatics. And in this moment of Jesus' death, Mary loses everything, every dream, every hope, every plan that she's had for her life. But it's in the letting go. It's in releasing our own agendas to God. It's in putting 
her trust in a God who seems to be silent, allowing God to be God, allowing Jesus to be Jesus, that Mary gains it all back. I just want to say to you this morning, if you feel like in your life you have come to the end of your rope, please know this. God cannot catch you until you let go. Do whatever he tells you to do, she instructs the servants. And we see in these words her, her hope, this little, this little glimmer, her, her, her trust, her faith, that if she just follows Jesus, she doesn't have to worry about anything else. If she just follows Jesus, the best is yet to come. Let's read on. Standing nearby are six stone water jugs used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each one of them can hold 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus tells the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars have been filled, he says, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. And so the servants follow his instructions. Like The miracle here is just so simple. There's no prayer of blessing. There's no word of of command. There's no casting out demons. There's no laying on of hands. There's no mumbo jumbo, hocus pocus. (laughs) Just a simple command and a simple action. Jesus doesn't even touch the water. He doesn't doesn't take a taste afterwards just to make sure that that it worked. (laughs) The water simply becomes wine. As the Lord and master over all of nature, Jesus leaps over all of the natural processes of time, growth and gathering and crushing and fermentation. In in utter simplicity, this water turns into wine. Two small rabbit trails for you here. First of all, there are some Christians who don't drink any alcohol at all, and that's fine. Um, That's a choice that you can make for yourself, and that's absolutely fine. But there are some that claim that Jesus didn't turn this water into real wine, that all he did was change it into some very good grape juice. And that is simply not true. They don't serve Welch's grape juice at Jewish weddings. They never have, and they, they never will. It was real wine, fine, pure intoxicating. And secondly, we do have warnings in our Bibles about the dangers of strong drink. So we, we've got those warnings to be careful when it comes to alcohol. And, and we also are told that we're not supposed to be drunk. Drunkenness is a sin. Don't be drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. The Lord is near. And so we have to take those things into consideration. But wine, it's a clear indication that the wine of the day really was alcoholic if there's a warning against it, right? Wine was a common drink then as in now, and believers can participate in it, providing they do so with caution and self-control, avoiding the sin of drunkenness and the sin of offending other people. Just two small rabbit trails. But the real punch of this miracle, the the part that I think just hit me this week and and just put me in, in awe was, was not that Jesus turns the water into wine. That, that's, that to me is not the real impact. The real impact is found in the next couple of verses. When the master of ceremonies tastes the water that's now wine, not knowing where it's come from, though of course the servants knew, 
He calls the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. And then once everyone has had a lot to drink, then he brings out the expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now. The master of the banquet is confused. I mean, this is the time in a wedding when people will be bringing out their dollar a gallon wine, you know, the wine in a box that you store in your bottom of your fridge. And, and, and he's got Chateau Lafitte. 1787, and he's got lots of it, like 20 to 30 gallons each. That's like 150 gallons of wine. And the bridegroom, (laughs) bridegroom's not saying a word, right? He doesn't know where this wine came from, but my goodness, he doesn't have the financial resources to purchase all this wine. He's just looking here and going, and the servants are probably just grinning to themselves, They know the secret. They know that six stone jugs of water have just produced the most exquisite wine ever. And you know, everybody else at the wedding, I don't even think they know. I don't even think they're aware that there's been a miracle that's happened right in their midst. They just go on drinking. See, Jesus has not simply turned water into wine. Jesus has taken ordinary water and miraculously turned it into the most amazing wine that any of the guests have ever tasted. The best is yet to come. And you and I have a profound spiritual lesson in this story. We have a God who saves the best for last. When we follow Jesus as our Lord and our Master, surrendering our own agendas to him, submitting ourselves without question to his plans, it may look dark and hopeless for a while. We may be tempted to give in to defeat and despair. We may lose a few battles along the way. We may grow impatient and wonder if he's ever going to do anything at all but we can hang on in confidence even when it looks like all is lost because we know our God saves the best for last. The best is yet to come. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee is the first time Jesus reveals his glory and the disciples believe in him. I wonder if you do this morning. Here we are, you and me. I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know what's going on in each one of your individual lives. I don't know what hurts and burdens you carry from the past. I don't know what you're going through even this week. I don't know what losses you've sustained. I don't know what's going on inside of your heart. I don't know what hurts you carry or what fears and doubts tend to overwhelm you at times. I just don't. But all that I know is that this story is not for the few. It's not just for the random few people who have this magical faith that the rest of us think we can only aspire to. 
the disciples and Jesus believe in him. They're already following him as imperfectly as you and I do. But this miracle deepens their faith in Jesus. They, they see him doing this and it, and it confirms their belief. They learn that here in Jesus is someone who can take this crisis and turn it into a wonder. Who can take an embarrassment and turn it into a triumph. Who can take brokenness and turn it into healing. Who can take water and turn it into wine. And we've been hit hard. Oh, we've been hit hard lately. I'm getting really tired of all of the Facebook posts that start off with, I'm really tired because we're all, we're all really tired. Healthcare professionals, people that fly for a living, those of us that have businesses, all of us. The world seems like it's gone mad. And there's moments of fear and doubt that threaten our faith. But I read this story and I'm encouraged because I serve a God who is in control. And I know, I know that because of the promises that he's already fulfilled, I know the ones that he's going to fulfill someday. The best is yet to come. I know that even though I don't always see it. Do you believe? We're grieving today. We've lost loved ones. People that we care for deeply have passed away or in the ICU fighting for their lives right now. The sting of death has hit us hard. But we read this story and we deepen our faith because we know that even in death, Even in death for the believer in Christ, the best is yet to come. Do you believe that? Today is my last Sunday as your pastor. And I I don't know what God has for me and my family next. We don't know what's next. He hasn't opened that door yet. And some of you are going to miss me and Elaine. Probably more of you are going to miss Elaine than me. And you're wondering about it all. You're worried about what God has for Bridgeway next. Let me assure you with what I believe, what I know in my heart to be true. That the God who turned water to wine at a wedding in Cana in Galilee is a God who loves and looks after you. He does. If you trust him, you will find that the best is yet to come in your life as well. Do you believe? The words of Mary to the servants are a challenge to you and I this morning. Do whatever he tells you to do. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. This is the heart of discipleship. This is the soul of following Jesus. This is what Lisa's going through. Is she looks back and she goes, how is it possible that I've, that I've come to this point in my life and I haven't yet obeyed him in baptism? And Jesus has said to her, get baptized. And so she's going to. She's going to tell you about why God has brought her to this point at this particular time in her life. Do whatever he tells you to do. If you commit to that, I have every confidence that you will find that you're following a God who saves the best for last. 
that as his follower, you know, you know that the best is yet to come. Let's pray. Father, we love the first part of Hebrews 11, (laughs) where the people of faith have all these amazing triumphs and do incredible things. And we get to the second half of Hebrews 11, and it says that some are, are sawn in half for their faith. We think that might be Isaiah, the prophet. That some lose their life because of their belief in you. And none of us want to be in the second half of Hebrews 11. We want our lives to be triumphant. We want our lives to be full of victory. We want our lives to reflect you. And when we see the hurt or the things that we've gone through, we want to see how you're bringing good out of it. How you're, how you're replacing beauty for ashes and the oil of joy for the spirit of heaviness. We want that, Lord. And so we pray and we ask in faith, in Jesus' name, that you would heal our land, that you would heal this planet, that you would bring an end to this pandemic. But we pray beyond that, Father, that you would make us bold. We are not those who shrink back, who cower just because the night is dark. We're going to step into that darkness. We're going to reach out to people that need a word of encouragement. We're going to choose kindness when people are being so cruel to each other. We're going to reflect you. And in faith, as you live your life in us, we're going to trust that the best is yet to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite Lisa to come up and share a little bit of her testimony, a little bit of her journey with you this morning. And uh, Darren and I, I think, are going to head to the back and get ready to baptize. They said I could take my mask off, so... I want to say this morning that I'm so thankful for the people in our life group. They have been such an incredible blessing and encouragement and faithful prayer warriors for both Irwin and I over the last few years. I just want to say thank you. It's special for me that some of our family are here today and also dear friends. Thank you so much. Philippians 2.13 says, For God is working in your life, giving you the desire to obey him and the power to do what pleases him. Since about February, I've been aware that my Heavenly Father has been doing just what that verse says. He has been working in my heart and in my mind. Today brings me to an act of obedience. Romans 6, 3b and 4 
When we became Christians and were baptized to become one with Christ, for we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Why baptism for me today? When it was in the summer of 1964 that I accepted Jesus as my Savior. Well, life happens. This morning, with his help, I choose to share part of my life story with you. Two words, shame and unforgiveness. These two words have been rather significant in my life. Yes, I had been raised in a Christian home, a Southern Baptist one at that. My beloved mother was the parent who had Jesus as the constant in her life. At the age of 11, I went to Bible camp where I was challenged to give my life to Jesus. It was after camp with the love and guidance of my Sunday school teacher that I accepted Jesus as my own personal savior. Soon after, we moved to Alberta for my dad to teach at Prairie High School. I'm not quite sure why there wasn't an encouragement for baptism there, at least not in my memory. Years went by. Then I was married and came to a Mennonite community where baptism was a bit of water poured over one's head. Enter shame. There I was, a Christian, a married woman, now a mother, and I had not been baptized. From time to time, conflict arose within me concerning the mode of baptism. My children, one by one, came to the place of desiring baptism. How would I dare question or put doubt within them as to how one should be baptized? Yet in time, I came to realize it's not how, but why, that really matters. A boy once told me he would not be baptized with the others his age because he knew who they were apart from church. Why is what truly matters. Allow me to share with you two reasons I have not chosen to be baptized until today. I go back to those two words I mentioned earlier, shame and unforgiveness. The devil, Satan, the evil one, whatever name we choose to give him, is expert at enticing us to not do what God desires for us. He desires our obedience. 
For me, Satan has reiterated these two concepts in my life. As I've spent the past months looking over my spiritual journey, I realized I have allowed Satan to halt my spiritual growth by heaping a feeling of shame on me. Why shame? Well, here I am, a Christian woman with more than 50 years between the day I accepted Jesus as my own personal Savior and today when I choose to throw off that feeling of shame. Shame in my childhood. Shame in my father's abusive treatment of his wife and children. Shame in my broken family. Shame in having been sexually abused by others. Shame in not having been baptized. That voice in my head saying, they would not accept you if they only knew. Romans 8, 38 and 39 states, I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from his love. Death can't and life can't. The angels can't and the demons can't. Our fears for today, our worries of tomorrow, and even the power of hell cannot keep God's love away. Whether we are high above the sky or in the deepest ocean, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Psalm 119, verse 80, may I be blameless in keeping your principles that that I will never have to be ashamed. I move on to the other word I mentioned at the beginning, unforgiveness. Although it's extremely difficult for me to share this part of my story, perhaps it's part of your story too. Nineteen ninety nine was the year I faced the sexual abuse from my childhood. My wonderful pastor and his very caring wife helped me greatly in this process. Confronting an abuser after decades of living with the memories is beyond hard. Even if just over the phone, even if you are thousands of miles apart. I'll call him Jack. When Jack realized who was on the phone, his response was a broken voice as he spoke to me. Even with the hard things that he himself had experienced in life, he had never forgotten what he had done to me. My question to him, why did you never in all these years Call me and say you were sorry. His answer, I just wasn't man enough. No, 
He did not say, will you forgive me? It was the sorrow in his voice which put me on the journey of forgiveness that would extend for the next 15 years. Come with me back to 2014. I have returned to the deep woods of Louisiana, the place of my childhood. Sorry. I'm there visiting my 92-year-old father, who is far into dementia. He really doesn't know me as his daughter. One afternoon, I take my camera and I go for a walk. Earlier, I had noticed white irises in bloom at my aunt's long-abandoned yard. I cross over the cattle guard. which people who are not from the South call a Texas gate. After taking a few photos and remembering my beloved aunt, I turn and cross back over the cattle guard. Just on the other side of the road is a nice house with a wire fence and a number of very yappy puppies. An elderly man comes through the gate, asking what I wanted. As I replied, simply taking pictures of my aunt's irises, recognition hit us both. Lisa? Jack? Remember, It had been 15 years since I'd heard his voice on the phone. 15 years since I had heard the sorrow in his voice over his treatment of me. What happened next is one of the most beautiful things in my life. As we both took steps towards each other, our arms lifted in welcome. We enfolded each other. His tears fell on my shoulder as mine fell on his. Forgiveness, what joy. Just a few months later, I got news Jack had died. My heart was at peace for him. He no longer carried that dreadful burden of feeling unforgiven. During that same visit in 2014, another area of unforgiveness in my life hit me fully in the face. I had not forgiven my father for his abuse of his family. I had held on to the hope 
he would say sorry or admit his wrongdoing. Here I was with my dad, knowing I would not have many more days with him in this life. I would have you understand that when my dad was a good dad, he was a really good dad. I loved him dearly, even though my relationship with him was often difficult, even very difficult. My heart was truly broken for all those hard times in childhood, even into my marriage and motherhood. When physical abuse had long since ended, his emotional abuse had continued, reaching into my own family. How does one forgive when hurt has permeated to all areas of one's life? I had some extremely hard questions to ask myself, some deep soul-searching to do before my Heavenly Father. In October of 2016, I would see my dad for the last time in this life. By now, his mind was totally stolen by dementia. He did not know me. But during those months between March of 2014 and October 2016, God had been working in my heart. the hundreds, perhaps even thousands of tears I had shed over my earthly father were all being collected by my heavenly father. Psalm 56 verse 8 reads, You keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. Someone asked recently, how do you know when you have forgiven? For me personally, I know choosing forgiveness has been a process, a journey, one that Jesus has walked with me every step of the way. It seems all of us live with shame and forgiveness because of one thing or another in our lives. It has affected my life greatly. I'm quite certain it also affected Jack's. We cannot overcome neither sh shame or forgiveness by ourselves. He Jesus Christ is there to walk the journey with us. My dad had served in the U.S. Navy during World War II. Being a veteran, he was honored with a military funeral when he died in July of 2017. Just this August, 
I received a parcel in the mail from his widow. Just this August, I received a parcel in the mail from his widow. It was the American flag that covered my father's casket. The feeling of peace that came over me left me without any doubt. Choosing forgiveness does that. I have peace. I can now clearly remember that when my dad was a good dad, he was a really good dad. As I stand here before you this morning, I'm ready to be baptized. With God's prompting and healing, I have chosen to put away shame that has held me captive for much of my life. Also, I have chosen forgiveness, knowing that it is not simply a choice I have made but the reality of Jesus having forgiven me and his working in my life, giving me the desire to obey him and the power to do what pleases him. I close with two verses from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31 and 32. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander as well as all types of malicious behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ Jesus, has forgiven you. Thank you. Lisa Reimer, do you confess your faith in Jesus Christ and shed blood for the forgiveness of your sins? Yes. Do you renounce the devil and all his works in your life? Yes. Do you commit yourself from this moment forward to follow Jesus with the rest of your life until eternity beckons? Yes. Upon the confession of your faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.